welcome to Diverse Tech Founders, a podcast about the one thing older than capital, people like you and me. Now here's your host, Abraham J. Williamson. Welcome back to Diverse Tech Founders Media. We're in for a special treat today, and I, I guess it has multiple meanings because we're going to get a chance to try the product for our guest today, who is Onye Ahanotu, who is going to come to us with... Ikenga Wines. Ikenga Wines. Thank you for that. Okay, Ikenga Wines, and we're going to get a chance to try exactly what that wine is. But before we get into it, we're going to start where we always start. Onye, why don't you just, you know, sort of tell us who you were kind of growing up, how you got here, and if younger you would be friends with who you are today, and the floor is yours. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. I'm pretty excited to have this conversation and um, dive into interesting topics. My name is Onye Ahanotu. I grew up in a little town in Sonoma County called Roner Park, California. Uh, Sonoma County, if you don't know, is a wine country for grape wine. Um, and kind of over the course of my lifetime, I saw the, the space, spaces I used to play in, grass fields, just transform into vineyards. So I saw kind of the explosion of the industry uh, before my eyes. As a child, my mom is African-American, um, grew up in the Midwest. My dad is Nigerian, um, grew up in Southeast Nigeria. They met here in the, the Bay Area. You know, those two uh, cultures basically bring attention to my life, right, of Nigerian or American, right? And I think uh, as, a, as a child of an immigrant, um, I'm somewhere in between, right? Like you don't feel quite American enough to be American. You don't quite feel Nigerian enough to be Nigerian. And I think part of that is interesting of like just eating different types of foods at home. And then when you go out and you're with your friends, you're eating like pizza, right? <laughs> so I think a lot of folks have that experience. But as a child, I was just very creative, curious. I always wanted to know how things worked. Um, I remember taking apart like discarded electronics. My dad had this uh, audio receiver um, that he got a new one. And I just took it completely apart. You know, what, what are these capacitors? What are these things? How, what, how does this thing work? How does it produce noise? That was just kind of like a guiding uh, exploratory spirit as a child. And I think that has held true, um, maybe just with a little bit more uh, baseline information, <laughs> let's say, to go off of and to be curious about. I have a few follow-ups uh, in a lot of different categories because you said a lot right there. So I'll go in reverse order. So first, uh, when it came to tearing things apart or, or opening things up, et cetera, you mentioned you come from two different cultures. Was that encouraged by both cultures or your parents? Could you talk about like if they tried to stop you or encourage you or how that got magnified based on you know who your parents were? And then secondly, you talked about straddling two different worlds. And if you can or are willing to share, on the one hand, it can seem like, well, I'm not enough for either side, but did it also give you a portal or like a pass to get into these different cultures in different ways? Or did you feel like it was always, you know, sort of separate? And then finally, in Sonoma County and wine country, you remember this as a child, as a kid. And I actually know someone who is also from Sonoma and said that it is very present. You know what I mean? You have people who are imbibing all over the place. Um, so did your interest in wine kind of grow from that? Were you exposed to it? Or if you grow up in Sonoma County, you don't have to get your parents in trouble. Are you drinking early? Like, what is it like growing up in, uh, you know, wine country, you know, basically adjacent to Napa Valley? Starting with uh, was was the creative destruction 
part of my childhood? Was that encouraged? I would say uh, that it was. My my parents have been um, pretty pretty open to my curiosities and have at sometimes given me the literal tools <laughs> to do so. Uh, so my dad had a set of tools uh, I remember as a kid, and I would borrow them, you know, Phillips head to start taking apart the um, the receiver and stuff like that. So. The tools were provided to me, and um, what did they do? What was their profession? Uh, they were not technical; um, they're more on like the business and operation side. So my mom worked at the post office, uh, had a long career there, and uh, my dad did many things, uh, but basically was in management and uh, consumer experience. Uh, eventually, um, landed you know ended up his uh, having his life in a bank towards the you know, end of his career. And both of them are retired now, so they're enjoying the, the happy retired life. When it comes to my background, just like having that tension between the African-American side and the Nigerian side, Nigerian side, you know, growing up, we would go to monthly meetings and, you know, so, you know, the, the community was there and it still is here um, in the Bay Area. And I felt, you know, embraced by that community, uh, having grown up in it and still know some people who were both just like little kids, you know, kind of in these meetings where adults were having their conversations or playing in the back. But when it comes to the tension, I think there, uh, it speaks to the tension that a lot of folks have um, when it comes to being an American uh, and spe- specifically a child of an immigrant. So for me, uh, there weren't many Nigerians in Rona Park where I grew up, but there were a lot of folks who were uh, Latino or Vietnamese or Chinese, uh, and they had a similar experience, but just a different framework, you know. So we were kind of united in our differences, if that makes sense. And it was something that I gravitated towards. You know, a lot of my close friends were of, you know, immigrant parent, had immigrant parents um, as well. And yeah, I think we just kind of like shared that kind of camaraderie of, of uh, that kind of like lived experience and kind of navigating that tension. Growing up in California specifically, it definitely influenced me in being more curious about other cultures because there's many present. And my second language is not Igbo, which is my dad's primary language, but it's Spanish. You know, being a Nigerian American here in California, I definitely got influenced by all the cultures around me. And, you know, even into my adult life, I ended up traveling a lot in Latin America uh, and I've traveled more in Latin America than I have in Africa. <laughs> what is taking you there? Since I can get around, I'm not like fluent in Spanish, but since I'm conversational, it's just like a you know, new places, new cultures, new uh, histories, cuisines um, to explore. So uh, yeah, more more just social kind of exploratory um, kind of side of me, and you know, again, that speaks to this kind of like curiosity of like, oh, what's what's over there? How does that thing work? How does that culture work? What, you know, what led them to having these kind of customs? What, what was their, uh, you know, history with the Europeans, let's say? <laughs> did you ever encounter wine country in South America? I did. Uh, I ended up going to Pisco in Peru, uh, where they grow, I guess, lots of grapes there. Uh, most of them are turned into a distilled spirit, Pisco. But yeah, most of my wine journeys have been in America, specifically in California. And growing up here, I didn't drink before I was of age. Okay. Um, but I definitely, I was studying chemistry. I was curious in chem- about chemistry as a child. And uh, there were a lot of applications of chemistry in wine. So I think it did plant the seeds of how uh, science can be used or leveraged to uh, improve something that we consume. 
So go more in depth on that. How like chemistry and why, and how, how do those two get connected? I mean, as a kid, I I had no real idea. <laughs> so there's like different levels of knowledge. So as a child, I just knew like, okay, chemistry is kind of this study of change. You bring a piece of ice out and you put it on the table and it melts, um, or there's some reaction. Uh, or cooking, you know, kind of like transforming raw meat into cooked meat. These are just like kind of like phases from one phase to another phase. Uh, so that was kind of my general understanding. And when it came to wine, I just knew that a lot of wineries were hiring chemists to be in the lab. Um, and I didn't really, really know what that meant. But I was just curious of like, oh, maybe this is a unique application of how I can leverage this base level of understanding and kind of apply it to something that you can drink. So what does that mean for us now? Because eventually you did find yourself in the lab uh, among the wines and you came out with a, a different conclusion from what a lot of people here uh, in wine country would, would do, which is a different type of wine. So talk to us about what is palm wine. And you're right, I've never had it before, but you have blessed us today with the opportunity to try some. So maybe we'll get some fresh reactions about what is palm wine, how it tastes and all that. So feel free to, to pour up as you as you go into the description and explanation of what is palm wine and specifically why you decided to go this route, even knowing that here in the United States it's not that popular, but around the world may be more widely accepted and imbibed. My journey into kind of food, science, uh, it definitely came more uh, recently. The last five years is something that I would say I dove deeper into, threw myself into, let's say. Before then, I was really focused on really just learning the base uh, knowledge of how do you ask interesting questions and how do you, what are the tools that you can go about trying to answer those questions. Ultimately, my interest was in translating things from the lab and into the real world, so commercialization of things. And through my different experiences, like working in algae biofuels in like the 2000s, um, I saw that it wasn't just the technology that was required in order to make like a real change or real impact. Um, for biofuels, just if you don't know, it was technically feasible, but economically it was more feasible to use that platform of algae as a growth system uh, to produce nutraceuticals, cosmetics, and kind of like higher value things than things to fuel your car. So when it came to uh, like, you know, as I was kind of getting this background technical experience and commercializing, translating things from the lab, from an idea into a tangible field study or, you know, spinning out a company. Uh, I saw that, you know, I, I wanted to do something in that space. I had a lot of ideas myself and um, I wanted to explore those. Palm wine just happened to be one of those many ideas and uh, going through kind of this de-risking process, um, similar to, uh, you know, what I learned at industry of how do you select, uh, match up a technology with an application. You know, palm wine kind of naturally floated up as something that uh, technology could be applied to to bring it to the U.S. So you had other ideas that didn't make the cut? Yes. Like what? Like what, what, what was, I don't need to revive the dead ones. One of the really promising ones was um, accelerated aging of wine or spirits in general, barrel aging. So kind of as I was, this is maybe going to date me, but you know, as I was getting into food and just like what makes food good and tasty and like the things that I like about it, uh, I started kind of getting nerdy about the process and trying to understand like what made a meaningful difference. And one category that I did that in was coffee. Uh, so specialty coffee. 
different growing regions, different processing, different preparation of the coffee, espresso, the grind size, how does the particle distribution of the grind, how does that impact your experience of it? Um, so I kind of got like really, really nerdy <laughs> into, uh, into this category and then um, saw the opportunity to apply that to something else, something that wasn't here. And that thing that wasn't here was culturally relevant to me, which is palm wine. What is palm wine? Man? Like, what, like, what is it? Uh, where does the palm come from? What, what, uh, educators. Yeah, so palm wine, I like to say it's the biggest wine you've never heard of, if you're here in the U.S. at least. Uh, but it's consumed across the, uh, the global south. So from West Africa to South Asia to the Philippines. Um, and it's a wine that is made from the sap of a palm tree. Somebody either climbs up a tree or they cut the tree down and they go and they harvest that sap that's leaking out of the tree, let's say two times a day, one in the morning, one in the evening. It's a spontaneous ferment. Uh, so it's just like whatever natural ambient microbes that are in the air on the tree, that is what ends up fermenting the wine. Uh, so there's no kind of like inoculation. There's no control, let's say, that the tapper or the collector uh, brings to that wine. It's just a found object. <laughs> so what does that mean in terms of taste? Does that mean they all taste differently? I think that there's going to be a lot of variation between regions and maybe even the different tappers. So they reuse the same container, collection container. So, you know, there's like history, right? Like of that, of, of living history of that container. Let's say they put something in it that wasn't palm wine that would impact the microbes that are going to be present in that container. Then they go out and collect uh, palm wine and it's fermented by something slightly different than their neighbor. Uh, when it comes to the flavor of it, it's really hard to find a description of what conventional palm wine tastes like because it's, it's kind of complicated. It's like, what does chocolate taste like if you've never had chocolate? Oh, I see. Um, that would be tough to describe. Yeah, but to put it in relation with things that you may have had before, I would say that it is... Um, Generally sweet and sour, kind of like a balance of sweet and sour. Like tart or... You know, it's more sweet than it's it is It's more sweet, yeah. okay. So the, there's like a little acidity that's kind of like this acetic acid acidity, vinegar, that kind of balances out this overwhelming sweetness. And Overwhelming? Uh, for me, I, I would consider it overwhelming. Uh, for some people who you know, have grown up drinking it all the time and that's just their baseline level of you know, wine, um, they would say, oh yeah, this one is good. <laughs> There's a slang of like, oh, it's sweet to me, you know. Like it's like, so traditionally, one might think of red wine, white wine, and all these derivations in between. Are you saying palm wine is its own separate category? Oh yeah, it's definitely its own separate category. And if you were to relate it to grape wine, it is you know it's not red, so it's whitish in appearance, literally whitish, like unfiltered, um, opaque, so you can't see through it, and. Um, yeah, it has it has lots of ceremonial um, significance in many different cultures. Like what? In Igbo culture in southeast Nigeria, uh, it's supposed to be present during um, wedding, uh, like engagements. So you come to the parents, you want to ask for somebody's hand in marriage. You should pre you should present palm wine. Whoa! Okay. To start the conversation. I see. And then when you're at a traditional wedding, palm wine is actually also used to uh, kind of like seal the marriage so you show up at your you know future father-in-law if you pull out the palm wine they know what you're about to ask basically is it that 
Uh, hopefully there have been some conversations before then, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> you never know. So we have palm trees here in California. Why don't we have palm wineries all over the place? That's a good question. Part of it might be due just to lack of knowing. Um, and the other part is the type of palm trees that are here. Most of them are decorative and most of them aren't very healthy. Whoa. <laughs> I mean, is that by design? What do you mean? Like, what? Just talk more about that. What do you mean they're not healthy? They're decorative. Like they just planted it. They don't have sap in there. Like why? Uh, there, there's sap in there definitely, or it wouldn't be alive. Um, but these, uh, these trees, I feel like it, break, it comes off this like European tradition of like during the colonial period, they're bringing all these, um, you know, exotic plants to places where they don't normally grow. So they would you know, build these massive greenhouses. And that was almost like a sign of wealth, right? You'd have this greenhouse and you have this orchid that it's impossible for it to exist if it wasn't for your infrastructure. I see. In terms of the alcohol content, the ABV and all that, what is the difference in the profile of palm wine from grape wine? So I guess for a lot of this, there's two different answers. There okay. is the conventional palm wine. So that's like if you go to Nigeria, you go to a village or you go to Cambodia, this is the type of wine you'll experience. And then there's my iteration of it. So for I'm just speaking mostly to the conventional for all this. So the conventional, it's um, around 4% when you drink it. If you don't know, palm wine only lasts one to two days. So it's like actively fermenting as you're consuming it, basically. So depending on when you drink it, if it like just came from the tree, you drink it right then, it's probably going to be you know close to 1%, really low, almost non-alcoholic. But if you wait six hours, 12 hours, one day, uh, you know, the alcohol keeps increasing. That sounds like a potential problem, though, if you have to tap the palm tree and then get it into somebody's belly within basically less than a week. Yeah, way less than a week. <laughs> Typically, two days, I feel like, is kind of when it starts to go to vinegar. Um, and that's why it's not here in the U.S., I would say, of the places that are you know, growing the types of palms that are typically tapped for palm wine. These are in equatorial parts of the world, and um, you know, oil palm, raffia palm. Um, it's not; these aren't the types of palms that you typically see here in the U.S. So, how are you going to bring it to America? So, my approach is to not do the conventional palm wine, not have a tree that you're, you know, harvesting and then getting it to the consumer within one to two days. My approach is to leapfrog how we think about producing foods that we eat, making a molecular palm sap. So instead of going to a palm tree, collecting the sap, fermenting that in a spontaneous way. I make my own sap from other plant-based ingredients that are way more efficient and don't require as long of a growing period. I think a lot of folks who are out there, uh, they're trying um, conventional preservation methods, so pasteurization or some sort of additives um, to try to stabilize palm wine. So we're kind of like trying for multiple angles, and I initially started with that angle, just saying, hey, let's keep it simple. I don't like to overcomplicate things if they don't need to be. So let's just keep it simple. Just do what was done in grape wine or beer. Uh, and the product that came out, it was stable-ish, you know, for about, like, let's say a month. Um, but the quality still wasn't at the level uh, that I wanted to be at. Okay. So through trial and error, you have produced a great-tasting, long-lasting palm wine. First of its kind globally. And in a way, I don't mean to 
demean or make light of what you're doing, but it's sort of like, you know, Colonel Sanders, like 23 herbs and spices. You've done that, this secret recipe, essentially, for palm wine. Yeah, yeah. Can so we try it? Can we try some of that? Yeah, yeah, we've talked about it for a little bit. Let's uh, let's crack it open. You got me, uh, so it comes in a bottle. So this is just the sample bottle, the okay. beer bottle. Okay. But uh, it will be in a 750 milliliter champagne bottle. Okay. So we're already getting to like a unique attribute that I add. Okay. Palm wine is typically not sparkling. Yeah. But I wanted to make it sparkling. Why not? So so you added that sparkle in there through your through your process. So once yeah once you have control over the fermentation and the shelf life, uh, then you can you know allow it to bottle condition and. Uh, Kind of generate that that uh, carbonation. So what is it doing right now? Is it fermented as we speak? Like what's going on in that bottle? <laughs> so this is unfiltered. Um, there's a little bit of sediment at the bottom. Okay. And that's all like the yeast. Uh, and if I were to shake it, you know, kind of agitate it, then it would get it to that like whitish kind of uh, appearance. Okay. And that's what people usually associate with palm wine. They're like, oh, it's white. They smell it. They're like, okay, I know what this is. Okay. <laughs> Very nice. And then, um, you know, because fermented drinks are uh, are all the rage, and they say that it is healthy for you. But uh, you don't have to comment on whether this, this is healing wine or not. But you know, in terms of uh, the health profile and the nutritional value, let's let's say it that way. Did you give any attention to that? There are many traditional, let's say folk folk wisdom, let's say about like health benefits of palm wine. So I'll leave it up to the listeners to seek that out for themselves. For me, it's not necessarily about the nutritional uh, value. It's about exploring the untapped potential of this category. Uh, it's traditionally been done in a spontaneous way, and I wanted to bring some control to it I see. and kind of explore the diversity that it can have. Okay. Well, can we give it a try now? Sure. Yeah. Cheers. Or Cheers. So this, uh, just to tell you a little bit about it while we're sipping. Um, wow. This is good. I don't know what I was expecting, but this is, uh, I like it. Yeah, and if you like it by itself, then you should definitely try some of these little bites. In many places where palm wine is found, um, there's like a custom of eating with your wine. Yeah. So it's not okay. kind of like you just drink. It's usually like these lively atmospheres. There's music playing, and you're just having a good time with your friends. So I brought some vegetable pakoras. Okay. So this is a little Indian fried snack. So you had to make certain choices when you were not just stabilizing it, but you mentioned that you had an intention to taste. So what were you going for? I know it's difficult to describe and we don't have an endless vocabulary of, of, of taste, but what were you going for? So, I mean, I kind of alluded to the sweetness just being a little too high for me uh, with the conventional wine. So I wanted to reduce the sweetness and um, even explore dry, like a dry palm wine. And what that would be like. So for me, it was kind of like, I'm still exploring the category. I'm still trying to figure out what I'm going for. But one thing that I found that I like in my palate is on the drier side and like a fruity kind of floral uh, expression. expression. Um, and these fruit profiles are kind of like more tropical fruit profiles. Um, papaya, soursop, guava. Uh, those are kind of like my reference flavor profiles as I'm you know, making different batches. That makes sense because those are equatorial type fruit a little bit, I would think. Yeah. So this one that we're trying right now, this is batch 33C. And um, 
you know, there's been many bashers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I like I like where this is, is headed. And you mentioned overwhelming. It's not overpowering in the way that someone is just like, you know, when you're introducing people to different types, one they're like, oh, I don't really like that. This makes me want to drink more. Did you like uh, chemistry? Did you... <laughs> you know what I'm trying to ask you. Did I design like, it? Did did you, I design exactly. It? Did you design it that way? <laughs> so I call this, um, you know, because I'm doing this kind of molecular palm sap approach and fermenting that, I call it bio-designed yeah. palm wine. So to differentiate it from kind of like the spontaneous palm wine. So I am bringing intentionality, and this is not the first batch that I made. So, you know, it's kind of like tweaks, little tweaks over time. You explore kind of the boundaries of the category. This one was actually really interesting because uh, I think it was one of the first batches that it was like this unknown dimension that I found. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You got to go in depth there because they, you know what they say, that the accidents, that is where the magic happens. You say unknown, but is that sort of, you didn't just accidentally drop an extra vial in there or something. What, no. was, <laughs> what was the unknown component? So I, I don't know how you feel about this one, but this to me, I, I, see, I say it has like a nice mouthfeel. Yeah. Like it kind of like yeah. uh, is inviting. And in certain ways, it uh, I call the, the kind of like softness and the foam almost like marshmallowy. Yeah. Kind of like it's kind of like just like really kinda, nice on your on your mouth. It sits on it and it's it's welcome. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's, it's a bubbly, but it doesn't feel like sharp. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like you said, like a marshmallowy kind of a floatiness, but it still feels... I don't know. It just feels like it fits, mm-hmm. if that makes any sense. Yeah. Okay. So that was kind of that element that was a surprise to me. Okay. Like the, the base flavor, um, I kind of knew what I was what I was going for. But then the mouthfeel, I was like, ooh, I like this level of foam, and it's just nice and soft. And um, I saw it going really well with certain dishes, especially like spicy dishes. Really? I see. So... Um, what is your goal with the different flavors and, and profiles? I see 33C over there. Um, like, do you intend that? Like, is this your signature flavor? Have you given it a name or will it always be the number? Like, what are you thinking? <laughs> That's a really good question. Some of these I'm still figuring out. Uh, I've done a number of private tastings and kind of like test the name, see what people think. Uh, 33C is one that I call celebration. Mm. Um, I saw that as a just like a really nice wine if you're at like a wedding or if you're at like a special moment. Um, it's something that really makes it more special, but doesn't kind of, uh, let's say, overwhelm the moment, right? If that makes sense. Totally. So you meant to, not, now you have me thinking about the market. But before we go big, let's keep it at that singular unit of analysis, the single customers, the tasters. Who has tried this so far, and have any tasters emerged that you wouldn't expect? I mean, are you going after people who are reminiscent and looking for nostalgia? Is your goal to introduce new people to the wine? Are you looking for people who think that they know wine and they just haven't really been introduced to this new realm of it? What are you going for and what is the reaction that you're getting from tasters? And are there any tasters who you didn't expect to fall in love? Those are really good questions. And I think um, I have the menu from one of the private tastings in front of us. And you can see there's kind of like these four different batches that we were trying they all have different names, different alcohol levels, different attributes like levels of foam, levels of sweetness. 
and having kind of like started off my curiosity in some of these specialty categories like coffee, I saw that there was like this huge opportunity just to explore diversity and not everyone's going to like each iteration. But if there are a few iterations, you'll find you'll kind of explore your palate and you'll find like what what matches with your palate and the types of foods that you eat. So right now what we're tasting is um, just exploring the West African flavor profile, the West African terroir, quote unquote, or terroir, what does that mean? Provenance. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> if you will. All right. um, but just like the, the kind of flavor that represents a region. Yeah. And that doesn't have to be a single flavor. There could be, you know, a diversity of flavors that represent that region. Have you had home wine aficionados try this wine? Uh, yes. And what do they think? So this goes back to what I was saying. Not every wine is for every person. Okay. This wine that we're drinking is not, I wouldn't say it's so like traditional. If you grew up in West Africa and Nigeria and you like had palm wine, this is not what you would say is the closest thing to what you had. But did they like it? Because the, there's two questions. It's like, is this what I'm used to and do I like what you did? Well, yeah, I'm talking about this particular batch, okay. 33C. On some of the other batches, I have explored um, and really honed that kind of like traditional flavor. So I do want something for the folks who grew up with the product um, and then those who want to be a little bit more adventurous and exploratory like myself, I would say. So if you grew up with palm wine, if I presented you with a dry palm wine, you'd be like, no, palm wine is sweet. Like that's that person's memory of palm wine. But to me, I view it as an underexplored category. So just because you had it sweet, doesn't mean that it always has to be sweet or that's the only expression of it. Man, so it kind of gets to this like, yeah, philosophical, what is anything, right? Like what is any category? Oh, I see. I mean, so I'm glad that you brought that up in. Feel free to get lofty here, but like the last episode we did was, what are you the best in the world at? Do you see yourself as being sort of the not not you know the big head or hot or anything like that? But do you see yourself pushing the category forward if we're even going to have a category at all? Like, do you see yourself as being one of these preeminent wine producers to the point where? Obviously, your wine is, is known around, you know, the world, but where do you see yourself? Are you just trying to, like, encourage other people to get into it? Are you trying to create something new? Like, what is your goal with all of this? My overarching goal, other than having a successful business and, you know, making money off of that and living off of that, um, is to increase the representation, cultural representation um, of the global south, but at this, this higher level. You know, not at the street food level. A lot of, um, like here in the U.S., a lot of cultural foods kind of start off in this like, oh, like tacos, like it's just cheap, right? It's just cheap food. Um, but I really want to show and celebrate and showcase that uh, foods from these regions can also be elevated to a high level. So having your culture represented at that level, I think, brings a sense of pride. And ultimately, that is why I started at Kango Lines. Um, so, you know, increase the, you know, increase what palm wine is, you know, explore that, allow it to go with foods that I like to eat <laughs> from around the world, but then also just give the sense of pride and um, meaning, you know, to kind of like cultural traditions. I see. So, um, how big is sort of the market if you just focus on the U.S.? Like, you know, are you having to create your own? I mean, do you feel like there's demand for what, what it is that you're building or you have to introduce 
person by person to this one? Like, how do you view getting to market with this 33C that is absolutely delicious? Yeah, a lot of folks um, out there already know about palm wine. If it's not through their own culture, maybe they read like Things Fall Apart. So there's lots of just kind of these creative outlets that talk or reference palm wine. Um, so some folks who I've you know tasted with, they're, they're like, oh my gosh, I've, I've read about this. <laughs> it's a surprise to me as well. But yeah, there's lots of folks out there who are Nigerian. You know, Nigerians are everywhere <laughs> these days, every major city at least, who uh, know of this category, maybe want to celebrate their, their culture, have you know, a wedding, and have their cultural drinks present, not, you know, not have grape wine present but celebrate in a way that feels like kind of authentic to them. So that's that's one you know big segment of my market is folks who already know about palm wine just don't know that it will be available here in the U.S. I see. So is the goal to see this at a wedding near you? I mean, if you're listening to this right now, could you substitute grape wine for this and everybody's happy with the celebration? There's more of a story behind it, like... Is that, you know, who you really want to have this? I'm just trying to get a better sense because I've had this now and I don't know when I'll ever see it again. <laughs> Eventually, you know, we'll grow. You know, we won't be uh, so exclusive, I would say. Um, but for now, it's it's going to be small volumes. And for, you know, for the, the nerds, for the connoisseurs, for the adventurous folks, the creatives who want to kind of like break out of the, let's say, Eurocentric kind of like world of grape wine this wine will be there for them. Talk about like the purchasers of bulk orders of, of palm wine, like your resellers, if you will. How do you want this to be distributed and what do they think about this palm wine? Yeah, I think for a lot of folks out there, this wine completes the conversation that they're already having at the table. Uh, so if you, let's say you go to a bronze in DC or you go to like Tatiana in New York, um, they're already kind of like exploring this perspective of like Caribbean, West African flavors. Uh, and then when it comes to the wine list, um, you know, there's not really many wines that do the same. So to me, this is something that would be perfect in that setting of being able to have a more appropriate and immersive uh, experience for the diner. So fine dining, kind of like, you know, the level just below fine dining as well. I think this would be really great where they're interested in storytelling and kind of creative pairings. Um, I'm not really looking at too many uh, large-scale distributors kind of at the moment. Um, we're still ramping up to our first commercial production, and we're planning on just having 500 cases in the first year. So it's really going to be, you know, for the for the folks who are in the Kanga Wines community. And that's really the focus in the first few years, just like building out that community, having um, kind of these exclusive experiences and events. And you can see kind of like where we're recording this from right now. You know, there's lots of little nooks and if you know, you know kind of places. And I think uh, with such a low volume um, and the kind of community and audiences that I'm uh, working with, you know, creatives who are throwing, uh, you know, an art, art uh, exhibit. This one that we're tasting right now, I actually previewed it at uh, the Smithsonian um, African American History and Culture Museum. Uh, they had this exhibit opening for uh, this Afrofuturism exhibit that's going on. So, you know, it's really for those kinds of like settings, I think. Um, that's where I'm focused on, at least uh, for the initial part of the company. This is high-end exclusive wine is what I'm hearing. Like, you're not just going to be able to get this down the street at your bodega or corner store. This is going to be 
you know, what do you see as the price point? You don't have to give us an exact price, but, you know, just kind of confirm for us kind of where this fits in and where, you know, if you're talking about Tatiana in New York, I mean, that's, you're going to have to pay a pretty penny in order to, to have your wine. Yeah. So I don't want it to be like out of reach or like kind of like at this level where, you know, it's so rare and like hard to find that, you know, you're paying like a thousand dollars for a bottle. I, I don't want it to be like that. But I do think uh, that we're providing like this really unique experience that allows people to explore the culture, the storytelling and the flavors of something that's really unique. We're looking at somewhere just above $40, um, kind of like for our flagship product. And we'll have probably some specialty, you know, uh, specialty batches or bottles that will be a little bit higher than that as well. Fantastic. So are there any naysayers out there like who've tried to discourage you so far? And if so, what have they said? And how did you sort of respond to that? I'm not trying to you know, bring it down. I'm just trying to get a better sense of if you've encountered any difficult conversations with people who have, who have tried to throw some salt on your wine. <laughs> um, yeah, I would say the folks who are sometimes the most interested are also the most critical. So this is all this is for all the Nigerians who are listening right now. Um, if you, you know, you have like a strong reference to palm wine, um, you know, as I've been developing and trying different iterations, not all of them really feel like they live up to that memory that you have of, uh, of palm wine. So for, you know, for some of the batches, they drink it and they're like, oh, this, this doesn't really taste like palm wine at least the palm wine that they're used to. But then some batches are like, oh, actually, this is, this is pretty close. Do you plan on having something for them? Like, do you are you looking for the one palm wine, or do you want to be able to satisfy, you know, different groups of people who, some want the nostalgia, some like me don't have a reference point, they just want a good time. What is your goal? It's something for both. Something for both. So I definitely want to have one product that really speaks to that kind of like cultural consumer, let's say. The person who grew up with the category and really wants that thing that they grew up with. Uh, we will have something for you. <laughs> but then if you are um, a little bit more adventurous, if you're, you want to explore your palate, you know, maybe you've had palm wine, but you want to see like, oh, what else could it be? Then there will also be you know, other product lines for you. And a lot of this time we've just been talking about like West Africa. That's been like my focus for the initial kind of like region, flavor region that I'm exploring. But then there'll be an Indian palm wine, a Filipino palm wine. And I mean, me just kind of like going back to my upbringing and kind of just like having a lot of friends from uh, various cultural backgrounds. You know, what if me as a Nigerian, my favorite palm wine is not a Nigerian palm wine. What if it's like this Filipino palm wine? I think that that starts to bring some really interesting conversations forward and it starts to unite um, these people who have a lot in common, a lot of similarities, but, you know, just different, different lived experience, different culture. You know, oh, we don't we don't you know, raise our glass twice. We raise it three times. You know, it's like, oh, well, we're still raising glasses. What's in the glass? That's palm wine. Like, I, I don't call it palm wine. I call it tuba, or tuba or toddy or, you know, so I, for me, I saw it as this interesting kind of a. Uh, opportunity to bring um, bring these folks together who have uh, a lot of similarities. You talked about the significance of formulating this, let's just call it in the lab. Is this a more sustainable solution? And if so, talk about the benefits of what you are doing versus having to chop down or mutilate palm trees and, you know, out in the wild. Yeah, so 
I would say before we talk about like how we harvest from palm trees, one thing to point out is before there's a palm plantation, there's forest. And you have to cut down the forest in order to plant the seeds. And something that I saw, I was traveling in Malaysia and just flying into the airport, you kind of fly over these palm plantations, you could just see the clear cut of like they harvested. I was like, wow. So it was kind of like, after that experience, I just saw this industry, let's say in Southeast Asia, and I saw the destruction that it could cause. Um, and having come from this sustainability focused um, research and development background, but biofuel, solar, energy efficient coatings, it was like, I can't ignore that element of this, this category. Uh, so something that I wanted to do as I was getting into it was how can we uh, make this more sustainable? Is it in how we harvest? Is it something else? And my answer ultimately was it's something else. And, uh, you know, palm wine or palm sap, at least, um, if we could find things that we don't need to cut down the rainforest, uh, all these components, then wouldn't that be a far better kind of like more efficient uh, solution to make this product? So, you know, you could call it lab-made. Some people have called it that. Uh, I think um, it is all natural ingredients. And one other dimension that people don't really uh, pay attention to is how much intervention goes into manipulating those ingredients in order to get something out that you want. So I call this a natural wine um, with high intervention versus a natural wine with low intervention, which is kind of what people think of when they think of like uh, pet gnats or this orange wines or these uh, more recent kind of like natural wine craze in great great point. So if you've done the math, how many palm trees are you saving per, you know, champagne bottle? Yeah, I don't have a, it's, it's so variable. So the amount of palm sap you get out is depending on, let's say seasonality. So it's just kind of like, Oh, what, what point do you want to look at the rainy season? You want to look at the dry season? Um, So it's hard to estimate exactly how many trees, um, but my estimate for impact is that this this approach ends up saving about 95% of the CO2 emissions that would have been emitted otherwise if you did conventional. So part of that includes clearing the, like land use change, so clearing the land, planting palm trees, waiting 10 plus years for that to grow, uh, fertilizing them, doing all that. And then you have the international commerce element. And with kind of like my previous, in my previous life, when I was at Harvard doing technology commercialization, I I worked on coatings that would save energy on cargo ships. So I I already knew kind of the the ultimate CO2 cost of just shipping something across the globe um, via cargo ship. So you don't have that, you don't have a land use change, um, and ultimately you can get everything domestic. So what type of support have you experienced here in the Bay? I mean, people typically know the Bay Area as being like the super tech hub, Silicon Valley down the road. What has been the reception like for you? The reception here has been great. Um, I was actually living in New York before I made the decision to come back uh, to the Bay. And part of that reason was, oh, wow, like the wine industry is here, biotech is here. It's a great intersection. And that's the intersection that I'm working at. So one of the ways that that manifests is that um, there's a community lab that I, that I started working out of. So you know, think of like a community center. You, know, you think of these labs as like these really pristine white, you know, white environments. They're expensive. They have all these fancy tools. Um, for this project, I didn't need so many fancy tools. 
Um, but I just need to kind of like the basics. And ultimately, I needed to read DNA to know what microbes I'm working with, make sure they're safe. And uh, the Bay Area has a lot of that infrastructure. So, so much so that I could, you know, have a membership to this, like, basically think of it like a gym or like a community club, right? You're just like, oh, yeah, come and go as you need. Um, make sure you try to keep it clean. Uh, and through that, I, I got connected with more things. So uh, there's like a service called GeneWiz and they, uh, they can come, you, you know, you, let's say you, um, you did your PCR. I think we're all familiar with PCR after COVID. But you did your PCR, you kind of like amplified a certain section of DNA. And now you're like, okay, I need to read this DNA. This company will just come in and pick it up, give you the results the same day or next day. So that's not something that I could get in Nigeria, <laughs> let's say. Uh, and, you know, some parts of the country, you can also get it. I was in Boston for a while, so I'm sure I could do that in Boston. Bay Area just kind of ended up being this unique kind of intersection of these, these industries. So I can get all my wine supplies very easily, and then I can do all the science that I need to do. I love it. So you've had a lot of different experiences before this moment of entrepreneurship and innovation and invention. You mentioned different routes that you maybe were in or could have gone. In what positive ways has this walk, has this journey impacted your life? It's not easy being a founder, right? Uh, but here you are doing it. In what ways has it impacted your life? If, if somebody is like on the fence about whether or not, you know, they should turn their nostalgia into a business, you know, what would you say to them based on your own experience? So many things. <laughs> Definitely so many things. Um, one thing is not everything needs to be monetized. So what do you mean by that? Meaning like, you know, some things can just stay hobbies, you know, so it's kind of like as an individual, you may want to dig deeper and kind of do some introspection of like why you want to explore this and how, how much conviction do you have, you know, to, uh, to make something into a business. The second note is maybe kind of like similar. Maybe all these are going to be like discouraging people from doing it. You know, like, like right. you, you kind of need to make your own decision and come to your own like logic of like, why you should leave like the stability of nine to five and go be a crazy person and start your own company. <laughs> yeah, I see. That's a good point. Hmm. But you decided to do it. What made you bet it all on this? Like what made you overcome those considerations to do this? Cause you could have kept it a hobby, but you decided to, to go big. Why? I saw the scale, let's say of this, of this category of this business um, would be much larger than what I could do as a hobby or service as a hobby. And one way that I orient my life or like have like work built up towards orienting my life is uh, trying to focus on spaces that other folks may not see or kind of like put it in another way, like doing things that only I, you know, quote unquote, only I could uniquely act on. Um, so this seemed like one of those spaces that it was like, uh, no, you haven't even heard of Palmline, right? I haven't heard of it, you're right. <laughs> so I think it was just one of these, like, you know, all the, all my lived experiences kind of all came together and, uh, there's just like this alignment of like, this is a viable business, a viable opportunity. And, um, I think that with my skills and background, I, I'm kind of the one to act on this. That's a great place to be. Is there a problem that you're solving though? Like, are there people who say, yeah, like this is this is very tasty and it is the, the floatiness on the tongue is a, is a very nice feeling. 
Uh, are people waking up in the middle of the night in a hot sweat saying, man, like it would be nice to have that Bible on my tongue? Like, what do you say to people who question whether people will be a path to your door in earnest to try this poem one? Like, what are you seeing that leads you to believe that this is not just a product that you like, but one that everyone will enjoy uh, once they get introduced to it? I think in the early days, I was just, uh, you know, kind of like, Oh, well, I know the Nigerians will like it. <laughs> I only thought that it was like a Nigerian thing. And I was like, okay, well, maybe it's like a West African thing. So there's, you know, a few million West Africans in the U.S. I was like, okay, well, that's enough. You know, a few million customers, that's enough. <laughs> um, and then I think it was really when I started, uh, after I had the invention of like how to make it without the palm tree, and I started doing tastings with folks who had no idea what palm wine was and um, seeing the curiosity and seeing kind of like the uh, the interest in the category and how they were thinking of like, oh, it would go great with this type of food. Like I was just eating at this place. You should connect with them. So it was really just this like organic growth, I would say. And that's how I view us kind of growing in the future. Just like word of mouth, you bring it to a party, you share it with your friends and your community. It's almost like a form of like social capital if you want to like frame it in that I was thinking that actually because mm-hmm. like you said even though it's, it's pricier than maybe the the eye level mm-hmm. that you might see in the supermarket it's still accessible if you're in the know mm-hmm. like if you're in a creative space you could happen upon some yeah um, if you are connected in that way so I mm-hmm. like that idea it, it's exclusive without being exclusionary mm-hmm. yeah and I, I think for me I, I'm a student of history, I, I like to learn from how things happened in the past. And there's just been waves of immigration, and there's this delay after some immigrant group comes, you know, there's this delay, all of a sudden their food starts penetrating into American culture and, you know, grows and grows. And now everyone's eating at sushi restaurants and drinking sake or tequila. I saw just kind of like that, that trajectory of other cultures. And even grape wine, I would say, you know, Italian restaurants were a big driver for the growth of uh, grape wine that's just like being consumed in the U.S. So I saw, you know, the culture, basically the, the you know, big quotes around that, the, the culture of the global South kind of like, okay, well, lots of folks immigrate in the last like 30 years, 40 years. So there is starting to be a rise in, uh, in restaurants and like hospitality in these, uh, these communities. And um, I wouldn't say they're like mainstream necessarily, but we're, we're, you know, close to downtown Oakland. There's probably like a few um, Filipino restaurants around here, which if you were here 10 years ago, that was not the case. So I think there's like this moment that's happening and folks are kind of just starting to become aware of it. But just having been interested in food and nerdy about it and kind of like searching around the corner and like under the rug and like, oh, what's this place? <laughs> you weren't even really paying attention to the... The great wines like that, like I can hear it in you. You're not sort of looking for their validation or attention or sign off. And I'm loath to even ask you what they may think when you walk into the room about it. Was that intentional? And, and are you building? Well, I know you're building something new and different. But, you know, as you think about your future in the wine space, what, like what are you like? Can anybody validate what you're doing? Is that even necessary in the way that it would be for a grape wine, where you're foregoing the opportunity to have people come to your 100-acre vineyard and see the grapes as they drive up and down the pearly gates and all that? So, like, 
<laughs> you get what I'm asking. Like, what what, what is going on there? Let me just give you a factoid okay. really quick before we dive any deeper. Okay. But for grape wine, um, something that I found, this is like, you know, there's one of these side ideas of like, oh, accelerate aging of wine. In my research, something that I found was in blinded tastings, people can't tell the difference between red and white wine. So, you know, if you kind of like take that at face value, sure, there may be some like grand sommeliers who can really pull out, oh, this is the left bank versus right bank. Like I could tell because of the sun exposure and the fruitiness and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's like, I think in a way that's like, it has become a fancy way to try to convince consumers. And uh, in a highly competitive market, you have to pull out all these, you know, tricks. Um, one of them is pretty labels. Uh, not to say that a label or packaging shouldn't be attractive to the consumer, but I don't think that should be like your core differentiator, if that makes sense. So grape wine as a space, as an industry, it's something that, you know, I, I can't not be influenced by it, I think. Um, I've definitely learned from it. I borrow certain things from it. But in a way, I want to create something new. And I don't view them as directly competing. Just as like, I don't know, you go to the store and you're like, oh, uh, sometimes you want carbonated water, right? Sometimes you want soda. But I wouldn't say like, you know, if you're getting like Coca-Cola, I wouldn't say that those two things would be like in your mind at the same time, right? Like they're very different experiences and maybe different settings of, well, I'm having tacos and I like Coca-Cola with tacos, right? Whereas I'm having fruit, maybe I'm going to have a sparkling water or something like that. You could just build a business, but you're building a venture backable business, which is very different. It's high growth, high scaling. Do you feel like you're ready for that where you are now based on what you've seen? What makes you believe that now is a good time for Palm Wine to be venture-backed? I think one thing that differentiates me maybe from other venture-backable businesses, and I'm starting with culture. Right? Usually, from what I've seen, a lot of businesses start with the technology, and then they try to like finagle it into, okay, how can we plug this into a culture that already exists? Um, so I kind of like started the other way of like, okay, where is the cultural opportunity? How are people already consuming? Um, what do they want? How do they identify? And then um, figuring out what the technology is I need in order to unlock that experience for them. So yeah, I think there's this uh, market, I guess, dynamic that I'm, that I'm interested in and differentiation of, you know, how can I be in a space that doesn't have any direct competition, but already has, without me doing any work, without building any audience, already has millions of folks who are underserved, who can't get the product that they already know exists, just have never thought of it being in the U.S., thinking of it something, oh, I have to go halfway across the world in order for me to have this product. Do venture capitalists get it that you've talked to about this? Have you ever had to, you know, push back on some assumptions or have they ever made a suggestion or that's made you make a change in the product or the direction that you thought you were going to need to go? What has been some of the feedback you've received and how has it impacted your journey? I've spoken to a lot of folks, <laughs> so a lot of different opinions, a lot of different feedbacks, directions, um, but I would say maybe as like a, relative, a relatable space, like let's say we were like it's 1979. And there's this thing called hip-hop. And you're, you're trying to convince people who don't listen to hip-hop that it's going to be huge in 10 years. You know, I think some people just won't get it, right? They're not in that space. They don't see the writing on the wall. They don't see how the culture's moving. So, yeah, I don't think that I'm for those people. I can't convince somebody that, like, 
you know, there's air around us if they don't believe, uh, you know, that they breathe air even. (laughs) So, yeah, I'm focused on folks who, I guess, look at markets, look at how um, pop culture and other subcultural movements kind of influence products and markets. And uh, I think those folks get it. Uh, There's, you know, obviously major questions of how do you educate a large audience, a large population who may not know about this category. You know, that's what I'm hoping to, uh, you know, work on over the next couple of years. And yeah, I don't think we're starting off trying to scale really quickly. My interest is in creating the highest quality product that I can and serving uh, a small audience um, really kind of faithfully. And once we, once we get that down, then we'll start thinking about anything scale related. Do you have an advantage over the traditional producers by virtue of your business model? Is it less expensive for you to make palm wine than it is for them to make palm wine, making your success and dominance essentially inevitable? Yes. I mean, the short, the short answer is yes. I don't have to own a palm plantation. I don't have to have a lot of expensive processing equipment. I don't have to ship internationally. I don't have to manage international supply chains. Once we you know, start to have an international presence, then that will be something else and we'll maybe try to navigate distributed manufacturing, um, which I think just in general, shortens supply chains, makes everything more efficient. You mean basically producing it in whatever country that's selling it by mm-hmm. you know, giving the blueprint to the local manufacturers? Yeah, I think there's like an opportunity for partnership of if there's a billion people out there in the world who want to drink this category, does it all need to be produced in one factory? You know, if you look at electrification, like the grid, you know, microgrids might be a thing in the future. Maybe you have some solar panels that help power like a a local community, Um, but it doesn't need to be, you know, you can have a big solar farm and, you know, centralize the processing. But I think there's other models to try to like operate out of that have their own efficiencies. So that's that's where I'm kind of interested in exploring. Do you have a team? Yeah, we. I'm the I'm the only full time operator at the moment, but I have uh, some consultants, some advisors who uh, help you know get me on the right direction. I, I don't have a big uh, brand building or marketing background, um, so yeah, I just try to. You know, rely on some other folks who have done, you know, obviously they haven't done palm wine, <laughs> but uh, yeah, selling products is nothing new, right? So, yeah. I see. But it's a relatively lean shop. Mm-hmm. Yep. We've stayed really CapEx light, just like super efficient um, while we've been focused on just developing the product. And now that we're rounding that corner, I'm looking to expand the team. And um, yeah, if there's folks who are listening right now who are really passionate and interested in what I'm building, I would love to, to talk to you, reach out. Um, but yeah, we're expansion is on, you know, is on the horizon. But yeah, we're just trying to stay elegant and efficient. I love it. Uh, and I love to see more and more folks getting into the beverage industry and business because everybody is doing it, regardless of your feelings about it. It's one that uh, there's a lot of turnover in the space. There's a lot of there's a lot of sales. So uh, it would be nice to have Palm Wine join that. Um, as we kind of wrap up today's conversation, which is, I mean, obviously the tasting in and of itself was one that I will remember forever because that was my, my first Palm Wine was with you. And You'll was, never forget. I will Your never forget. Time. It was delicious. <laughs> Even watching the bubbles come up and, and, and float on my tongue and all that. Very much appreciate that. Um In your own words, you sort of said this throughout, there's a lot of benefits to what you're doing, but what is the most valuable thing that you do 
for your drinkers? Allow them to celebrate in a way that feels authentic to themselves. You don't have to be Nigerian to drink something from Nigeria, but you know, if you identify with that, if you like the flavors, then yeah, I want to produce something that's of the highest quality, the highest caliber for you to just have a memorable time, have a good time, connect with other folks who are like-minded and uh, have something culturally appropriate that pairs well with um, the types of foods that you like to eat. Fantastic. And we want to follow your journey, follow your walk and uh, join that wait list or whatever we need to do to get on the list to get 33C. How can we do that? How can we stay in touch with you on your yeah, we, I do have an Instagram, Ikenga Wines is the handle, I-K-E-N-G-A Wines. We have a website, so on the website you can pre-order. We're doing these three packs, these micro cases. Um, so you can go on, you can pre-order right now. We only have a few left, so you know, get in before it's too late, I would say. <laughs> the idea around having a three pack is uh, the wine, you know, aging the wine is a whole new thing. Palm wine typically only lasts one to two days. So, you know, now having this one was produced a year ago that we're drinking. Actually, a year ago, tomorrow will be a year. <laughs> but yeah, so now you can like, you know, if you have all three of the same type, you can like, you know, share one if you want. You can open one immediately and then, you know, try and see, you know, maybe after a year or so, how do you, how do you like age palm wine? And uh, for certain folks, I've heard really good reviews. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you so much for... Uh... And opening us up to a whole nother world, or for those who know a little bit about palm wine, you still open them up to a new world because it sounds like you are the only one who can confidently say that my palm wine is older than a week. Then <laughs> it still tastes absolutely scrumptious, and that, that's a beautiful thing. And thank you for sharing the journey to here. And you're right, growing up in Sonoma County, coming from two different worlds African American and Nigerian. Uh, and being embraced to tear things apart, look at the essence of things so that you can rebuild it even stronger. It sounds like exactly what you've done with I Can Go On. So we appreciate you coming to the studio and talking us through that. Uh, we have a tradition here, which is to let you have the last word. So what thoughts do you have that you want to leave us with it, whether we have a palm wine in our hand or not? Ooh, it's a lot of pressure. <laughs> I mean, I would just encourage folks to uh, to think, you know, it's the whole the whole Apple thing, right? Think differently, right? Like uh, think, you know, think beyond what the conventional is, and uh, yeah, bring bring a little bit of yourself into maybe what you're doing. Be a little bit more authentic with what you're doing, and let that uh, ride that wave. See where it takes you. Who knows? Maybe it'll be a business. I love it. That's an encouraging word, and if it leads to half of what you've been able to produce, uh, you know, really leading this category uh, hopefully moving forward it sounds like you already are in a lot of ways less expensive you know stronger you know profile in different ways more experimental you know more options you're not limited by these huge fields of palm trees and 95 percent more sustainable i mean you really are you produce something special is what i'm getting at we appreciate you joining us here today but until next time we bid you adieu yeah great to be on the podcast Thank you for joining this week's episode of Diverse Tech Founders Podcast. I'm Abraham J. Williamson, and we had yet another great guest to pop in. And if you enjoyed today's podcast recording, please give us a rating. You can do it right now on iTunes or Spotify or whatever. Join in, and we'll see you next week.